for those of you that have not been here, the last 10 weeks, we have been kind of walking through, talking about what we believe as a church. Um, so just some core doctrines that we say, we believe this, we believe this. Um, these, are, these are what kind of we would um, say um, that we, as a church, would believe. And we talked about what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We talked about what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about man, and specifically man in our great need. Uh, we talked about salvation, how God himself has met our biggest need. We talked about God as the, as the sovereign God of the universe in control of everything. And then we kind of moved away from more of the, the weighty theological side of things and started, and Tanner talked about what, what, what the church is, what, how God has designed the church and how we respond as the church. And then through that, we talked about that as a church, we're built together as a family. Uh, we talked about specific family roles, how we, are, how we respond as a family, but also that ultimately God has adopted us into his family, that through Jesus we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And then as that family, we talked about last week, as a family we also, we worship. That because of who God is, we, we worship. And it's not just worship when we gather together on Sundays, but it's our whole lives being worship. And this week, what, out of that same conversation on worship, what, what I want to do is kind of take that and then, then even go one step further that as we worship, as we go outside of the wall, these walls, as we live, alive, live lives that are worshiping, that we take the gospel to the world around us. That it's all, it starts with that attitude of worship, that, the response of worship. And that leads us to our conversation on the Great Commission. And if you've been in church for any length of time at all, you've heard Matthew 28, 18 through 20, um, called the Great Commission. And I'm going to read it here in a second. But it is this command for followers of Jesus to go take the gospel to the nations and make disciples. And that when we gather as the church, we don't, we don't, we're not left wondering what to do. We're not left saying, man, what, we're all gathered here today. What are we supposed to do? Jesus has given us that. He's told us what we are to do, how we are to interact with the world around us. So let's go ahead and I'm going to read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Um, it will be up on the screens as well. Matthew, 18, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that's it. That, that is the Great Commission. And part of me feels like, what more could I say? What more could I explain that the command is Jesus is pretty clear? Well, there's lots of commands. We're like, man, what does this mean? What does this mean for, for, our, for our church? What does this mean for our lives? I feel like this one is pretty clear. Um, not that I feel any pressure or anything for preaching in front of my in-laws for the first time. Um, but I was going to make this just really short, read it, be done. 
Um, part of me wanted to go back and rewind to August. Tanner actually preached through this same passage back in August as we finished our, our walk through the entire book of Matthew. But on a serious note, that's kind of what I was asking myself this week. Like, what, what, what could I say about this? Jesus, the King Jesus, has given us these words. I, am I supposed to elaborate? Am I supposed to explain this further? Like, what could I ever do? And I don't want to try to add anything new. Um, but what I want to do is kind of just kind of get across a couple of different things that I, that I see in the Great Commission and what Jesus has told his disciples to be doing. And these are not three points that I'm going to walk through kind of in order like sometimes, but these are just kind of three big things that I hope that we can see through the course of this morning. The first one is that obedience to the Great Commission, obedience to the Great Commission flows out of our worship flows directly from last week. Obedience to the Great Commission flows right out of worship. Two, that the Great Commission is for every church, is for every individual who has been saved. The command is for all of us. Also, obedience to this command means that every church and every individual should be taking the gospel to and making disciples of every nation. Every church, every individual, we'll come back to this, should be taking the gospel to and making disciples of every nation. But something I don't want to communicate this morning in any way is any sort of sense of guilt or shame or condemnation or even a sense of this obligation that, that I think is so many pleas for evangelism or commands to evangelize. So often it, it, can, it can be communicated in this way that, man, you, you're not a real Christian if you're not doing this or, or God just needs you to do this and there's that guilt, that guilting people into doing this. And that's not at all what I want to communicate this morning. If there's any Holy Spirit-led conviction, I'm okay with that. But um, please don't hear any guilt or condemnation, anything like that. So one of the things that I mentioned was that the Great Commission, it, it comes out, it flows out of our worship. It's directly tied to this. Because I think that if we get our worship right, then the, the, the Great Commission, our obedience to it, is going to flow right from that. They're directly tied hand in hand. And what I mean by get it right is that if Jesus is the sole focus of our worship, that, that if we get it right, that is what I'm talking about. There's been times where I've given quotes by famous pastors, famous um, people. I've never given a direct quote from Tanner before, but I'm going to do this. Shrink your head a little bit. <laughs> Tanner said this last week. He said, worship is about letting go and surrendering everything we have to Jesus. Putting all of our hope in him, all of our trust in him, and all of our faith in him. Like, this is what I mean by getting it right. If, if we get worship right, if this is what describes us, then the Great Commission is also going to describe us. Because if Jesus is not the sole focus of our worship, of our faith, of our hope, if that's not it, then any obedience to this is going to be superficial. It's going to be done out of obligation. It's going to be in error. Because if we're not solely worshiping Jesus alone, how are we ever going to tell others and teach others to do it? Like If we can't 
say that of our own lives? How can we teach others to do it? How can we say, faith, salvation is in Jesus alone. Worship him, him alone. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. How can we do that if that's not our own lives? So I read 18 through 20. I'm going to go back and read um, 16 and 17 as well because I think this will help explain this just a little bit. Um, just, just go back two verses in Matthew 28. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, and he goes on to give the Great Commission. So there's a, there's a lot we can get into about why some worshipped and some doubted. There's a, there's a lot of conversation about that. I spent a lot of time looking at that this week, and I'm not actually going to talk much about it at all. Um, a lot would point to the fact that there's a lot more than just the 11 disciples here, just as there has been all through Matthew. There's the 11 disciples or 12 disciples who are spending a lot of time with Jesus. His, most of his teaching has been directed right at them, but there's often a, a, another crowd around them as well. Um, and so a lot of this would point to the 11 worshipped, and some others doubted. There's a lot that we could talk about. I think there's a lot of evidence that points to that. But regardless of that view, we see the response of at least some of Jesus' disciples. They see him, and it says they worship. They see him, and they worship. And remember what they've just seen Jesus. They've just seen him die. They've just, he's, he's already appeared to them. He's, they see him as the resurrected Lord. And last week, Tanner read from Revelation 5. And I'm, I'm not going to read this. I don't know if I even put it on the screen. I think I did, yeah. Um, but he said that it, this is from Revelation 5. It says that the creatures and the elders in heaven were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Uh, I mean, I don't know that these are the words that the disciples were using as they worshipped here. I, no idea. But like the, the Jesus that was standing before them, this is the Jesus who they saw die, who they saw now alive. They, they knew that he was Lord. Matthew 16, Peter's already, speaking on behalf of the group, has already said, you are the Lord, you are the Christ. But now seeing him, they, they worship. And as they're worshipping, Jesus gives them the Great Commission. And I think this is huge. That 16 and 18, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, all this is, is given as a group. Keep it, so see that Jesus is not just sending out disciples. Jesus is not just sending out disciples. He's, he's sending out worshipers. He's sending out those people that worship. They're worshiping disciples. He's saying, go, make disciples. But the people that he's sending out are worshiping. These guys knew Jesus. They, they knew him as the lamb that was slain. They had seen him as the resurrected Lord. And they're worshiping. And Jesus says, now, now go. And if you remember what happens when Jesus sends out these 11 worshiping disciples, it's hard to summarize Acts in just a few words. But we see them go hide in Jerusalem. We see the Holy Spirit come upon them. They start preaching, Holy, Holy, being filled with the Holy Spirit. They just start preaching God saving thousands of people at once. Churches are being planted. Those churches are sending out disciples, sending out missionaries. Other churches are planted. It's just going like wildfire through the known world. But that was happening when 
people were worshiping, when the disciples were worshiping, and that Jesus was the sole focus of their worship. He was the sole focus of their message. I'm just going to read two short excerpts from different sermons that were given through the book of Acts. The first one's from Peter that in his first sermon. Acts 2.36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Focus being on Jesus. Acts 5.10-12 says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the focus of their worship. He's the focus of the message that they're preaching. I'm referencing Tanner's sermon a lot last week. But last week you saw, we, we heard that Tanner modified a, a John Piper quote. John Piper said that, that what is it, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's what John Piper said, Tanner. Not saying that was wrong, but Tanner edited it and says, missions exist because worship is misplaced. That we all worship. Everyone worships something. But it's misplaced. It's been misdirected. It's not towards God. And with that same kind of mindset, I want to say that when you find a church whose worship is correctly placed, you will find a church who is passionate about missions. When you find a church, when you find an individual whose worship is correctly placed on Jesus alone, you will find an individual, you'll find a church who is passionate about the Great Commission, about missions. But again, worship here is key. Because we talk about what we worship. We talk about what we're passionate about. We've talked about this in many different aspects of our church. In guys group, um, on Sunday nights, on Sunday mornings. About, we talk about what, we're, what we worship. We, we talk about what we're passionate about. Those of us that are passionate about sports, we talk about sports. Those passionate about music, talk about music. You're passionate about your job, you talk about your job. You're passionate about your kids, you talk about your kids. You're passionate about... Enter whatever you talk about that. We all worship. We're all passionate about something. Not that all those things are bad. Many of those things are good. But if we're passionate about them, we talk about them. But also people are aware of these things in our lives. People are very, they know, man, he's passionate about that. He's passionate about this. Talk to someone for a couple minutes and you can usually find something they're passionate about just in the way that they talk. What if that thing was Jesus? What if that thing that we are passionate about, that we are quick to speak about, what if it was Jesus? I mean, just imagine this. Imagine having lunch with a coworker. Not, not, not a good friend, just, just a coworker, uh, an acquaintance that you see often, maybe. It wouldn't be awkward to talk about your sports team. It wouldn't be awkward to talk about the weather. It wouldn't be awkward to talk about this favorite band that you like. It wouldn't be awkward even to talk about how you love your spouse. 
So just, just, just imagine saying, man, I'm, I'm so passionately in love with Jesus. Look at what he's done for me. It feels a little like, man, like, is that something we would actually say in the, middle, in the middle of a conversation with someone that we already didn't know was a Christian? Or are we kind of hesitant? Does it feel kind of awkward? But what if people knew us because of that? What if people knew, man, I, I don't know who that Jesus guy is, but this guy is passionate. This guy loves them. I don't know. Is that what we are known for? But seeing what we see throughout the whole book of Acts, like, I feel like it's safe to say we know what the, what the disciples were passionate about. And most of them gave their lives for this. Most of them were imprisoned because they refused to not speak. They refused to take back what they were saying. Because they were worshiping. God, Jesus said, go. And they went. Made disciples. That's what they did. But what about us? I mentioned earlier that too many of these calls to evangelize, calls to share the gospel, are done out of this, not directly said, but out of this sense that God needs us. The sense that, well, God, he says the gospel has to go to the nations, so he needs us to be obedient. He needs us to, to share the gospel because he can't do it. He needs us. That God's like gotten himself into this issue, this, this problem that he said that all the nations are going to worship me, but that he needs us to complete that. And I was checking basketball scores last night from NCAA tournament, and I was thinking about this, that it's almost like, it's almost like we're treating God like he's this basketball coach who can call these great plays, can, can do all these great things, and, and be a great coach. But what is a coach without his team? The coach cannot win a game. The best coach in the universe cannot win a game without his players. He's standing there in a suit. Or other things, whatever, whatever coaches wear. But the coaches are not anything without their team. Hypothetically, a, a team could win a game without a coach. I heard that almost happened last night. Um, but like a, a team needs their coach, but a coach desperately needs his team. The coach needs his team to come through, to execute the plays. And unless they do, the coach can't win a game. But this is not God. Like, that was a negative example. That, this is not God. God does not need his team to come through in the same way that a basketball coach needs his team to be successful. God's success is not contingent on how well we do. God's success, his will being done, is not contingent on us. I referenced this a minute ago, but Revelation 7, 9 through 10. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Because this is John getting this vision of what is going to be true, what is going to be true in the future. So Revelation 7, starting in verse 9. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Like, this is happening. 
Regardless if you're faithful, if I'm faithful, this is happening. God has promised this is going to happen. This is going to be the nations before God worshiping. And you don't have to flip to, to Luke 19. But I just, I just want to show you this. Luke 19 is an example. Of, it's a, one of the accounts of the triumphal entry of Jesus of going into Nazareth, or going into Jerusalem. And the people are just all out worshiping, Hosanna, 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 laying their coats and the branches down. The Pharisees are a little disturbed and a little angry about this. And I think it's in verse 19, maybe. Um, it's up on the screen. I think it's verse 39, actually. It says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is saying, like, even if my disciples weren't worshiping me, the stones would. Like, God does not need us. Need is the word folks are here. God does not need us. But he does choose to use us. His good plan, his perfect plan, has always been that his church would be the instrument by which the gospel goes to the nations, by which the gospel goes to the lost. This isn't because of his need, but by his choice. Like, we've been adopted into his family. We've been adopted as sons and daughters, fellow heirs with Christ. As a part of his family, we go. As a part of his family, we share the gospel. As a part of his family, we go and make disciples. Like, just, just think about it. The glorious, eternal, sovereign God of the universe chooses to use us as a part of his redemptive plan in saving sinners. This makes no sense, but it's amazing for us. We get to be a part of this, not because God needs us, but because he chooses to use us. And it's commanded that we do it. It's not just suggested, it is commanded. But this has always been God's plan. It's always been God's plan that the gospel would go to the nations, that the whole world would praise him. Go ahead and start flipping to Genesis chapter 12. Kind of all over the place. But it's often thought that in the Old Testament we see God's love and his affection and his his, his, his direction of the people of Israel. You see that all through. But, you see, but also, God's plan has always been for the nations. Look at Genesis 12, starting in verse 2. <clears throat> and I will make of you a great nation. This is God talking to Abraham. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So even though God was taking one family, setting his direct love on one family, it was not about that one family. It was about the nations worshiping him through this one family. Like if you're reading through the rest of the Old Testament, God reminds Abraham of this a couple different times in 18 and in 22 of Genesis. In chapter 28, or sorry, sorry, in chapter 26, God tells 
Isaac, Abraham's son, the same thing. In 28, he tells Jacob, Isaac's son, the same thing. It's all the way through. I heard um, a while back, I heard David Platt give us a, a sermon vaguely on this same topic. And he went through probably 30 minutes worth of just book by book, verse by verse, all these, these commands that the, that the gospel, that, that God's love was, was set on the nations. That he was desiring worship from all nations. I'm just going to give three. Three of these. Psalm 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. It continues through the, through the prophets. I'm only going to give one. Haggai 2, 6 through 7 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of the nation shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Like we can spend a lot more time walking through God's word showing how his desire has always been for the nations to worship him. So Matthew 28 is not a new command. It's not something new. It's just a continuation of the God's plan that it started in the very beginning. But God set aside this one family so that the entire world might know him. And earlier I said that obedience to the Great Commission means that every church and every individual should be taking the gospel to and making disciples of every people group, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And I actually believe this is true, that that is the command that we've been given. And most of us, most Christians, would be quick to say that yeah, every church has been commanded to take the gospel to the nations. That is what every church has been commanded to do. But I didn't, I didn't just say church. I said every individual is called to take the gospel to the nations. And what I often hear when this conversation comes up is people, well, yeah, we're called to do that, but I'm called here. I've said the same thing. Maybe that's what you were quick to think when I said every person is called to take the gospel to the nations. Every person is called to, take, to go make disciples of all nations. To say, no, 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 I'm called here. I'm not called to do that. And I very humbly and graciously want to say that you're wrong. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. God has called you to make disciples of all nations. I'm going to purposely pause just for a second. Also to get a drink. Continue the pause. But seriously, that's what the command that we've been given. The, not trying to say that every individual person, every family group is going to pick up and move to a different country. That's not what I'm saying. 
You might not even step foot in another country ever, but you might. I hope that many of you do. But regardless, we've been commanded to make disciples of every nation. We might all have different roles to play within this commission, within this command, but we've all been given the same command through prayer, through giving, through partnering. There's all through supporting current missionaries. There's all sorts of ways that we can be active in taking the gospel to the nations. And many people are quick to say, I'll do the praying. I can stay here and do that part. Do you? Do you desperately pray to God that he would save people in all nations? Are you on your knees praying that God would send out workers to all the nations? That God would break down those barriers that are are, are, are like hindering missionaries from even gaining access to certain countries? Like, are you actively praying for that? Because that is a huge part of this. Absolutely. I'm not trying to downplay that because it's so needed. Ken actually mentioned a couple months, like a month or two ago, um, an app called the Joshua Project, which is a really, really cool um, app that shows different people groups every single day that have no access to the gospel. And it tells you what, kind of what the barriers are, uh, how, how the gospel how that, what, what attempts are being made right now to take the gospel to the nations. It's a really awesome tool. We should be praying every day that God would save people from all nations. Did you know? The command is to go to all nations. But did you know that the nations are also coming to us? There's over 600 international students at ETSU. 642 last year, I believe. The new international admissions counselor has been challenged to double that number in the next two years. No pressure on me. <laughs> but many of these students are, have come here to study, have come here to obtain a degree, and many of them are going, most of them probably, are going to return to their countries as teachers, government leaders, businessmen, just imagine them coming here, the nations coming to us, hearing the gospel preached, having their lives changed by the gospel, and returning as missionaries to their countries as they're going to go and be businessmen, as they're going to go be um, government leaders, as they're going to go do all these things in their countries. Yeah, we need to go to the nations, but let's not neglect the nations that are also coming to us. And many of you might not know this, that approximately 10% of the money through tithes and offerings that come into this church directly go outside of this church. Through supporting missionaries, through, through supporting the Gibsons who are preparing to move to Japan, through supporting other people. Because giving is a part of this as well. We, we, support, we support the gospel going to the nations through our giving. I'm not talking about, it's not a sermon on giving, on, on, on all that. But I believe that the Great Commission should directly impact the way that we sacrifice with our money. I don't care if you have a dollar or a million. How does your budget reflect that you believe this commission, this command is for you? The same could be said of your time, resources, energy, home, all those things. How do your priorities and all the things that God has given you in your life reflect that you believe that this commission is for you? This command is for you.
Scripture is clear that the command is for the nations. The gospel is not just for the United States. The gospel is not just for this people group or that people group or this gender or this gender or this socioeconomic class or this socioeconomic class or this person. But that God deserves the worship from all people. Jesus commanded, he's commissioned his church to do that. His people that he has saved to take the gospel to the people groups. I've debated about asking this question, but how are you doing with this? How, how, how does your life resemble that you're taking this seriously? Again, I'm not, I don't want to communicate any sort of shame or bring any guilt or any of that in this question. You've fallen short. We've fallen short. Grace is amazing that God continues to give us grace when we fall short. But how are we seeking to make disciples? I'll ask this. When is the last time that you verbalized the gospel to someone? Not, not, I'm not even talking about to a non-believer. Just when you verbalize the gospel out loud with another Christian, with a good friend. It's not usually this easy, but what if someone walked up to you and said, I've never heard of Jesus. I don't know what the gospel is. Can you tell me? It's not usually that easy. But what would you say? What would your response be? I would encourage our CGs. Our com- can, I would encourage our community groups um, within your, your friends, w- within our church, that we would be having these conversations, that we would be prepared to do this. There's much more to making disciples than just sharing the gospel. There's more to that. But sharing the gospel in our words is so, so important. We could sit here and talk for hours and hours about the perfect strategies that we can go and do this. We can talk about the perfect words that we could use. There's, there's all sorts of books and methods and strategies on how to make disciples and use this method versus that method. In seminary, we, we kind of were exposed to a lot of these different types of things. But all too often, I think that we can treat this like a marketing strategy. We can treat this like, like a worldly marketing strategy and try to apply that to the Great Commission. And if that's what we're trying to do, then we're missing it. Jesus' plan that he enacted with this was to surround himself by 12 oddballs, 12 disciples that had plenty of flaws, fishermen, tax collectors. That's probably not a good marketing strategy if we're basing our strategy off of the world. He had various other groups that came in, various other large amounts of disciples, disciples that would follow him. And as soon as he started preaching hard things, they would leave. Jesus spent his time working on these 12 disciples, investing his life into these 12 disciples. Then read the book of Acts. I've already talked about that. Look what, through those 12 disciples, what happened. We've got like double that here. We've got like double 11. A triple 11. Quadruple 11 sometimes. We're oddballs. 
We've got Southerners. We've got Midwesterners. We've got people of all sorts of different educations, all sorts of different occupations, all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Do we doubt that God could do that same thing in Johnson City, in our neighborhood, in our church? Because here's the thing, that I talked about the marketing strategies and all, and all that, how it's so easy to kind of go in with that mindset. But why was Jesus' plan, why, why was the Great Commission, why has it been successful? Because it's not about the, those oddballs. It's not about the strategies. It's about the gospel that they're carrying. Romans 1 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the gospel that has the power. It's not our right words. It's not our perfect words. It's not the way that we are perfectly obedient in this. The gospel itself has the power to save. You see, Jesus who gave this commission, Jesus who has commanded us to go and make disciples, he also started out by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on earth has been given to me. At the end of it, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. The same Jesus that has all authority, the same Jesus who through his atoning work on the cross provided forgiveness, provided salvation, that same Jesus said, I'm going to be with you always. Like, it's not ultimately up to us. It is Jesus. The weight is not on our shoulders to bear the load. Jesus saves. The gospel that we preach has the power to save. It's not us. If Jesus is the sole focus of our worship, if he is who we worship, then we are going to make disciples. I really don't think the two can be separated. Because as we worship, we're going to talk about what we worship. As we talk about what we worship, we're going to share the gospel. As we share the gospel, God is going to save people. We talked about this when we went through 2 Peter during Advent. God is still saving people. In his patience, in his forbearance, he is still saving people. We can have confidence in this. If we believe this, if we truly believe this gospel, that through Jesus, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been now made alive, that even when we were dead, God has made us alive, then our lives are going to be given to this commission, to this command. Again, I don't know if this has always characterized your life. I, I don't know. But as we respond, what I want to challenge you to do 
there may be some repentance for, for sin that maybe your lack of obedience to this direct command from Jesus. But what I want to encourage you to spend time doing is how God might use your life to be obedient to this commission. What might that look like in your lives and the things that you're involved in right now? As a student, as a worker, as neither, whatever you are involved in, how might God use you to take the gospel to the nations? How would he lead you to give of your time, your energy, your resources, your home, your money, your time, all these things? How might God lead you to do that? Who are the people around you that desperately need to hear the gospel even here in Johnson City? How might you share the gospel with them? I pray that we would continue to be a people and would be a people more than ever before, be a church, be individuals, that passionately worship Jesus. And out of that worship, the world would hear the gospel. That in our passionate worship of Jesus, that the world would see that passion that we have and that we would be so bold, so passionate about sharing the gospel, sharing the good news that Jesus humbled himself, became man, died the death that we could not die because of our sin. That we might no longer live in that sin, but live for him who died for us. We have a beautiful message to proclaim to the world. Let's pray.